We have a privilege today to, to hear Ryan Carroll, and um, better known as Dana's husband to most of you. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to introduce Ryan because if you've lived as an immigrant in another land, uh, then here's a man who has tasted a little bit of what that's like. Or if you've lived overseas and tried to figure out how to translate the gospel and how we've understood it in our culture and communicate it to people from a very different culture, uh, then here's a man who gets some of that too. And for me, that piece makes us a little bit of kindred spirits. Um, and Ryan and Dana and and Michiko and I have had some good conversations and look forward to many more. But um, as Kelly was away last week and this week, uh, he thought it'd be great to ask Ryan to uh, speak to us. And I think that's great as well. This is it? Nice. Yeah, I, I had to choose, you know, if I want to stand up here or down there, and I don't really ever think I'd deny myself an opportunity to stand above people. <laughs> that's exactly what you want to hear from the preacher on a Sunday morning. Um, I haven't preached um, in pro- almost a year, so this is actually quite nerve-wracking for me. Um, though it's a little less nerve-wracking because you'd be shocked at how intimidating it is to preach in front of a bunch of Russians. There's not a whole lot of reaction to what you're saying. There's certainly not a lot of giggling. They get your jokes. They just don't find it that funny. Uh, but I've, I've been trying to, you know, figure out, you know, what do I want to say? One of the most difficult things about preaching is you can come up here and you can find something to say. Every week, right? You can open up the Bible. There's a lesson uh, to be taught. But what's hard, I think, as a preacher is to find a lesson that really resonates with you and figuring out how do I translate my thoughts and what I'm thinking right now to something that might be relevant to all of you. And basically, I don't think I'm very good at that. I've never thought of myself as a very good preacher. mainly because I don't really like coming into a room and saying, let me teach you something you don't know. Um, I think all of you are pretty smart. I I think you guys know a lot about Christ and the gospel. Um, One thing that I do like to do um, is I like to be an encourager. I like to help reinforce something that we already know, something we know to be true. Um, And hopefully through the end of this, we'll have a better understanding of how to do that a little bit better. But I'm going to start out with a story. You know, in, in my life with church, there's basically two things I, there's, that we don't talk about. One, we don't like to talk about sin. Specifically, we don't like to talk about our sin. Uh, we don't walk into the church building and go, guys, guess what I did this week? It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. We feel shame. We feel shame for what we did. But we also don't understand or don't know how the other person is going to receive that information. If I confess this sin, is it a guarantee that the person across from me is going to accept me and understand that? For a lot of us, this is where most of that anxiety comes from. The other one is something I just found out recently. It's not very important. But I think all of us understand that we don't really talk about the, uh, the after effect or the breath that we get from the communion cup. There is a very, very strong permeation when we drink from the 
communion cup. And this isn't allegorical. I mean, we all have really bad breath after we take communion. And I never talked about it until last week, and somebody said, this is exactly what I've been thinking my entire life. When I was a kid, I was a really, really, really good kid. Very nice. I was raised in a Christian home. I was very sweet. When I became about 14 or 15 years old, I started making some really bad decisions. Now, I know some of you are saying, Ryan, you just described every teenager in the world. But I was kind of rebellious. When I was really young, my mom, when my sister and I wanted to do something, um, say we wanted to go see a movie, we wanted to go to the store, maybe get a soda, uh, she'd reach into her purse and pull out this little wallet, and she'd unzip it, and she might hand us a $5 bill. We'd say thank you, we'd take this money, and we'd go do what we wanted to do. But by the time we got to the age of around 14, she didn't open that purse as much for us. She started saying things like, you need to get a job. If you want to do things, you need to pay for it yourself. I didn't agree with that. So one day I come up to her and say, hey, Mom, I'd like to go see a movie. Can I have $20? She said, no, get a job. So when she wasn't looking, I went into her purse, and I took the $20. And then I went to the movie. I did this a few more times. One day she asked me, Ryan, some money is missing from my purse. Did you do that? I said, no. But you know who that sounds like? My sister, Ashley. And this is a true story. I said that. Obviously, stealing isn't okay, and I was raised to know that stealing wasn't okay. Lying certainly isn't okay, and I was raised to know that. I never heard any more of this. I stopped doing it. I felt guilty. I felt bad, and my way of penance was to just stop doing it. I was just going to stop stealing from my mom. Now, some of you, I see some mothers shaking their heads saying, "Mm mm-hmm. Now, a few years later, right after this, I went to Bible school. Got a major in biblical text and theology, uh, and I started working at the church that my mother went to. One day, she asked me to come over and help her move a couch. So I moved a couch for her, and we decided that she decided she wanted to treat me to uh, get a drink. Like, we went to Sonic. Do you guys know what a Sonic is? Canadians, no? If you drive through the U.S., this is a big deal. So we were going to go. We were going to get a tea, something like that. And my mom pulls out her wallet, and she had no money. She goes, oh, I forgot to get cash out. So I pulled out my wallet, and I pulled out $100 in 20s. I said, Mom, I'll pay for it. She goes, no, 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 you're my son. You're not going to pay for anything when I'm around. I said, no, I think I should pay for this. Mom, I don't know if you know this, but about 10 years ago, I stole $20 out of your purse five times. (laughs) I want you to have this money because I feel bad. And she looked at me, and what do you think she said? I know. I said, what do you mean you know? Because the mother I know, if you knew, you would have screamed at me and yelled at me and punished me. Why was I not grounded? She said, you were old enough to make your own decisions. I was like, so you agree with my decisions? Nope. In fact, she said she was very disappointed in my decisions. She missed when I was sweet and didn't steal and didn't lie. I mean, what made this conversation even more awkward was when she said, well, you gave me $100, but you should also give me some interest for the amount of years. (laughs) But basically, my mother was telling me, I love you, and I wanted you to be around. 
One of my mother's greatest fears in life was that her kids were going to grow up and not want to be around her anymore. We would outgrow our mother. We'd be too busy with life. We wouldn't see her. We wouldn't call her. We wouldn't talk with her. She wanted to be in relationship with us. And I always felt strange about that because I never really paid the price for uh, my crime or my sin. But I think if we're honest, I think we all kind of have a story like this, right? Where we were shown grace, we were shown mercy, um, when we were acting in rebellion, when we were acting in ignorance, whatever it is. But I think if we're also honest, we see around the world, not everyone has extended this grace by other people. And I basically have two points today. And I want us to get to the point where we understand that we have been the recipient of a great gift. A wonderful gift from God. And part of our job as Christians is to also extend that gift to others. I work at the Calgary Pregnancy Care Center here in town. That's what I've been doing since Dana and I stopped being missionaries in Estonia. Um, we were, I was in a fundraising meeting because I'm part of our fundraising team, and we coordinate with churches trying to figure out, uh, you know, what's our strategy for next year? How do we do this? And they, the fundraising coordinator starred five churches, uh, local churches here in Calgary. And they started it because they had an extraordinary increase in funds that they've done from years past to years now. And I was thinking, oh, this will be interesting, maybe some new churches. And I look at the top of our list was the Calgary Church of Christ that had a 473% increase in giving from previous years. Now, all of that money, and I, I spoke here a couple months ago, went to helping women who are in crisis, women who uh, feel a lot of shame, they're pregnant, they don't know what to do, they have no support system. And I felt a lot of pride in that. And I think that's amazing that we're in a place that cares about a group of people like this, someone who might be broken, somebody who's going through tragedy. In the Bible, we see there's certain groups of people that Christ really dedicated a lot of time to. One of these groups was women and children. Um, in the old Hebrew, it was always take care of widows and orphans. Uh, but you see it constantly in Jesus' uh, ministry. He says, let the children come to me. Or you see these really unique interactions that Jesus has with these women. Uh, the Samaritan woman. Uh, the woman who we talked about last week, who touches Jesus' cloak and gets healed, he showed this great mercy and grace with these people who society didn't really view that highly. Um, he cared about the sick, those who were unclean, people with leprosy, people who with paralysis, um, even people who were demon-possessed. These were people that Jesus went out of his way to care for. He cared for the poor. He would constantly tell the teachers of the law that if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, what must you do? Sell all of your possessions to the poor. And this last group is the sojourners, travelers, people who needed hospitality, people without roofs over their head. Of course, Jesus was considered one of these oftentimes. Um, but a more modern translation of this could be someone who is homeless. Somebody who has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, somewhere, someone who needs great health. And I think it's important that we look at these groups and we look at the Bible. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 in our Bibles. And we look and see, why did Jesus care about these groups so highly? Sorry, my little... Why did Jesus care about these groups so highly? And what does that mean for us? 
The hard thing about talking about sin is there is a tension um, amongst Christianity. There's a tension in the Bible between grace and extending grace and good behavior. And when we're talking about church, sometimes it's hard to have grace on somebody who constantly shows behavior that we don't like or we don't agree with or we think isn't in accordance with the gospel. If you turn to Mark chapter 2, we're going to read the first part of this chapter up through verse 14. This is the story of Jesus healing a man with paralysis. But it's not just, he didn't just come across this man. It's kind of an extraordinary situation. Um, in Mark, up to this point, Jesus had been traveling around the villages in Galilee near Capernaum. And he was healing people, casting out demons, and preaching and ministering. Uh, right before he meets this man with paralysis, he meets a man who has leprosy. And we've read this story at church before, but basically this man finds Jesus, hears about the great things that he's doing, and said, Lord, if you're willing, please heal me. And what does Jesus say? I am willing. And he heals the man, but he also has a request. Does anybody remember what he asks him? Don't go into the city and tell people what I did for you. Instead... Go and offer a sacrifice to, Moses, to, uh, to God just like Moses did. He wanted him to quietly go into the city, not telling him about Jesus. Why? Because if he told about Jesus, Jesus was not going to be able to enter the city. It was going to be too crowded. There was going to be too many people, and Jesus had things to do. And I like the way it's written because it's not, it's not written where Jesus came specifically to heal this man but that this man came to Christ while Christ had a mission, and Jesus inconvenienced himself, made his trip a little harder by healing this man. Is it always easy to help somebody in need? Is it always convenient? No. Eventually, Jesus is able to enter the city. But at this point, if you read through Mark chapter 2, the house that he's staying in is packed with people. Totally crowded. People are talking to Jesus. People want to see what Jesus is going to do. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had gone home. So, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered him on a mat uh, that the paralyzed man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, contextually, one important thing to note is there is a high likelihood that this is Jesus' home. Um, at one point, Jesus did live in Capernaum. This could be his actual home. So imagine somebody ripping a hole in your ceiling to lower their friend in. I believe he has every reason to be upset. But that wasn't his reaction. This is another case of Jesus kind of inconveniencing himself for the sake of somebody who's sick, who needs help. He said, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow think like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, 
Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to get up and take your mat and walk away? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive your sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up your mat and go home. Immediately he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. It's an interesting story. You have this group of four friends who desperately wanted this man to be healed. So they climbed up on the roof of Jesus' house, cut a hole in it, skipped the line, and went right in front of Jesus. And Jesus seemed to approve of this action. He wanted people to bring them to him. He wants people to come to him. In my life, well, and one other thing we should talk about, with paralysis, with leprosy, um, any of these kinds of things, if you're demon-possessed, oftentimes in this culture, this was not just viewed as, oh, that's really unfortunate. Oftentimes people may have thought, well, maybe this is because of their sin. Maybe this is the sins of their fathers and their fathers. It's some sort of punishment, right? That's why they might be in this situation. But what's really interesting is these were people that the teachers of the law did not think it was okay for Jesus to be associating themselves with. These were not the right kinds of people. But it kind of made sense, I think, in this context because they understand in the old law that we should take care of the sick. They understand that we should take care of those in need. This made sense to the Pharisees. But later on in the chapter, we're going to talk about another situation that didn't make sense to the Pharisees because Jesus takes it a step further because it says that Jesus decides to dine with sinners. Specifically, this is the word that's used in the Greek. He is dining with sinners. In the next part, if you just want to, I'm going to paraphrase it. It says the calling of Levi. Levi invites Jesus to his home, and Levi is a tax collector. And we understand that tax collectors were incredibly dishonest, especially in that time. Oftentimes charging more tax so they could pocket the money. Um, If you look at it, it says right here in verse 15, when Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners um, and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but for the sinners. This passage really resonates with me because where I grew up, I grew up in the deep south. This wasn't always true. In my experience as a young kid at church, oftentimes being a Christian kind of felt like a country club. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced that either, where sometimes it seemed like Jesus was for the righteous. Jesus came for those who are faithful all the time. Jesus is here for those with good behavior. This obviously isn't what Jesus felt in the Bible. Jesus came for sinners. He came for the lost. He came for those who were broken. Uh, One example I have of this, and this was very confusing for me as a young kid, is one thing that my church always did really, really well growing up was when somebody was pregnant, 
there was a big baby shower. And what's the point of a baby shower? It's not just a party. It's to help the mother, right? It gives them all of these things that they might need to prepare to be a good mother. Um, And for the father, of course, but he's probably off playing golf. But it's very, very important to understand that that's what that was meant for. Here's a baby crib. Here's a, big, here's a surplus of diapers. Here's all these things, a baby stroller, all these things that a new mother might need. This is such a blessing to give to this new family. But I remember distinctly, when I was a kid, there was a young girl in our church who was 15 years old, and she got pregnant out of wedlock. Obviously, the Bible is clear on what that is and that that isn't the behavior of, that God wants. But there was no baby shower. She would come to church every week, a little bit more, showing a little bit more, becoming more visibly obvious that she is, in fact, pregnant. She felt a lot of shame. She felt a lot of judgment. That doesn't feel like the way that Christ would have treated her. And the thing is, I know I'm guilty of this because sometimes we do this subconsciously. And it was funny, I was talking to Anna, the one who was pregnant. She placed her child for adoption. She felt that that was the best decision for her as a 15-year-old. She had another child later, and she kept the child and chose to parent. But that was always very confusing for her because she had one child who was adopted, one child who she kept. And she said, I always felt judged at church. And this, I think we all can relate to the situation, right? She felt judged at church. And a lot of people would say, no, you're not judged. We all love you, right? And they do. They feel this great love towards her. But they didn't really talk to her. They kind of kept their distance. Part of the reason is people find it uncomfortable, right? It's awkward to talk about sin. It's awkward to talk about crisis. It's awkward to talk about tragedy. Um, some, some people it was uh, because they felt uh, that this person deserved a little bit more shame, maybe. Maybe that they didn't really understand that this was a bad choice. Well, Anna stopped going to our church. She felt this enormous pressure, and that never resonated well with me. But there's a lot of ideals like this because as great as it would be to help anyone at all times, it's not always feasible. It's not always easy. Because it's easy for me to say, hey, when there's someone in need, just go help them, and it's all going to work out perfectly. Growing up, I was taught... You know, you never, need to give, you never give money to someone who is begging because they're just going to use it to go buy uh, something that's not important, right? Um, and so I always heard this, and when I was older, I said, I'm not going to believe this anymore. I'm going to give my money to people who need it. And when I was in Estonia, it was when I was 19 years old, there was a man, a Russian man at the bus stop, and he was sobbing, crying, tears covering his face, drool, snot, the whole thing. It was very gross. And he said, I need to get to Moscow. My family lives there. I have no money. I missed my bus. And I said, don't worry, I'll help you. And I handed him 50 euro. And I left, and I felt great. I helped this man get back to his family. Next week, I came back in on the bus. There's this man, still slobbery, and he says the same story to me. He forgot who I was. What does that mean? Unfortunately, I don't have perfect answers because just because we give doesn't always mean that it's going to be received the right way. 
Um, and there should be some guidelines and there should be some wisdom that we practice in the way that we give and we offer care and support. Um, but oftentimes we kind of become polar. Either we're extremely giving or we're not. But I think it's just important in these situations that when we're at church, we need to understand who this place is for. Um, it is for us in fellowship. It's for us to grow closer together. But this is a place for broken people, of which all of us are. We all come in carrying sin. We all come in with a sense of brokenness. A lot of us don't like to talk about it. But it's important that we understand that's what this place is. The cross is for forgiveness, not for to show how righteous we are. There's another interesting passage that you may have heard of in John chapter 3. And I was reading it this week, and I read it differently than I ever read it before. Um, we all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's a great one-off verse. But it's really even more interesting when we look at it in the context that this was Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Now, this was the story where Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the law, sent by the Pharisees, he says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And this is that great passage about baptism, right? You must be born of water and the spirit. But he, all, he kind of upsets Jesus with his ignorance, and what's so interesting about Jesus in his ministry, when, he, when he's interacting with the woman at the well, does he get angry with her? Does he condemn her? Does he get upset with her? No. When he sees this person with leprosy, does he get upset with them? No. With this paralytic, does he get mad? No. Uh, this tax collector who's been cheating people, even Zacchaeus, is he angry? No. He shows love. He shows kindness. He shows care. When Jesus talks to the Pharisees, does he get angry? Oh, yeah. This is one group that for whatever reason, Jesus does not show as much patience with. The other ones are those who were the money changers at the uh, temple courts. But he says this after Nicodemus isn't getting it. He's not really trying to get it. He says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Which is a pretty serious thing to say to a teacher of the law. No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The everyone who believes in him, he's talking about those who have accepted his grace and have faith in him, who believe in him, who want to follow him, not those like the Pharisees who are obsessed with power, shaming others. And then it's the verse, For God so loved this world, for God so loved you, for God so loved sinners, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but they'll have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to do what? To condemn the world, 
but to save the world through that son. And I love this passage that God, it's this great love story that God has for us. Do you ever think of the Bible as this love story? I love what Darcy said. It's so interesting when you read the Bible and you read about Israel. God has this great love for Israel. I don't understand why. Because they seem to just continue to be unfaithful time and time and time again. But God really, really, really wants them to be redeemed. Why does he care so much? Why does it matter so much to him? He cares so much. You see it in the book of Hosea. You see this story where it's like this allegory. And you have the prophet Hosea who's told to marry Gomer. And Gomer was a prostitute. And the idea is that no matter how faithful Hosea was, Gomer wasn't faithful in return. And this is how God feels. But it was always so hard for me to understand is why does God continue to do this to himself? If he knows that they're going to be unfaithful, why does he care? And the only answer is because he has great love for his people. He wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants them to be redeemed. In 1 Timothy, and this is the last thing we're going to talk about. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. Now, one thing we know about the Apostle Paul, if you read through the books of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 23, the Pharisees and Sadducees have this moment where they're talking with Paul And Paul says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Okay, so Paul claims that he's a Pharisee. Like, not just like hyperbolically, but he is an actual, he was an actual Pharisee, and so was his father. He comes from a long line of Pharisees. This is their heritage. This is what he's always believed. But when he's writing to Timothy, someone who he loves very dearly, he says this in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I said in the beginning, I know all of you are smart people, and this is something that all of you already know. But I have found in my life that this is something that's very easy to forget. Um, sometimes as I study the Bible and I, and I start to think, man, I'm doing things pretty good. I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm making good decisions Sometimes I forget that I am one of these broken people who Christ came to save. And if we look around us in our city, we look around us in our world, there's a lot of brokenness. And it's hard because you can be a missionary across the world in Estonia. Will you find brokenness? Yeah. If you cross the street and go to Marlborough Mall, will you see brokenness? Yeah. Which puts a great burden on us. Because part of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to share him with other people, people who are sinning, people who are broken, people who are lost, and show your love to them. What Paul says, and what I think, what I believe he's talking about, is when he came to 
uh, meet Bar- when he met Barnabas and he came to the church in Jerusalem, he was shown this great love. Um, and I think that's a good approach when we're dealing with people and we're trying to teach them about Jesus. Um, I was taught you need to tell people and pinpoint what are all their bad behaviors, show them in the Bible where their bad behaviors are, and then they'll just stop having bad behavior. Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, for those of us who, well, not me, but for those of you who are parents, can you do that with your children? Does it always work? Say, John, do not touch the stove. You could show him an an incredibly well-put-together PowerPoint slide of why it is bad for him to touch the stove. What's he probably going to do? Touch the stove. Do you kick them out of your family? Say, well... You disobeyed. We don't love you anymore. Of course not, because that's your family. And it's very important that we have the same grace and mercy on the people who come into this congregation. This is a place for brokenness. This is a place for the lost. And it was so interesting as preparing for this and sitting in this budget meeting and seeing how much our church raised for these people who are dealing with brokenness. It was incredibly encouraging. And I think, I love the verse in Matthew where he says, um, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. And I believe that this place is a city on a hill. And I think by our great example, one person at a time, we can maybe change the way people view others. Let's do that this week. Show God's grace to others. Overflow them with the love of Jesus Christ, just as Paul said. And I think one person at a time, more and more people are going to come to know who Christ Jesus is and give their life to them. And because I was raised in the Church of Christ, this is the part where you give the whole, if any of you have a need, any need at all. Um, but I really, it is a wonderful moment. If any of you are thinking of baptism, if anyone is thinking of Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus, Keep following that feeling. Today's a great opportunity, but talk to somebody. Follow that feeling. God is real. God is alive. He wants to love you, and he wants you to follow him. Amen?